Now, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that it was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. Today, Phillip Island is best known for its penguin parade where hordes of fairy penguins waddle out of the waves every night to return to their burrows, while crowds of tourists and holidaymakers watch quietly from the stands. The island is also famous for its Grand Prix racetrack, which attracts visitors from all over the world for annual events such as the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. The racetrack was developed in the late 1950s, but when the circuit was damaged several years later, it closed and fell into disrepair. In 1985, a consortium of families came together to buy the land, both for its farm use and with the intention of restoring the racetrack. Six members of the prominent Cameron family, all who lived on Phillip Island, had shares in the land. Fergus Cameron and his wife Vivian Fergus's sister, Marnie Cairns, and her husband, Ian, and Fergus's brother, Donald Cameron, and his wife, Pam. In this episode, Vicky Petratus carefully pieces together how all the people involved in the Phillip Island murder case converged for that critical moment. A couple of days before the end, Vivian rang her brother Keith and asked if she could come to Melbourne. She wanted to leave the island and stay with him. It was an odd request she'd never asked to come and stay before. They already had plans to catch up that Friday to attend a dance in Melbourne. Vivian's sister-in-law thinks it was a BNS ball. To his everlasting regret, Keith said, Don't come, I'll see you Friday. Keith himself was interviewed by journalist Richard Schmeisel in 2007. He called his decision to put Vivian off coming as appalling. Keith said Vivian had called to change the visit with her two young sons to the Monday and Tuesday, the nights of the tragedy. Keith said, Vivian seemed distressed as if she wanted some advice from me. However, I thought that whatever bothered her could be sorted out at the weekend. I still have trouble with my decision. Vivian's sister-in-law said, Keith died about 10 years ago now. In his final days, he was still talking about his regret and guilt. He felt that if he had let her come, it wouldn't have happened. Guilt is a strange thing. In all my years as a crime writer, I've had so many people come up and tell me how guilty they felt because a small change in their behaviour or a different choice might have prevented something bad happening. One example was a man who came up to me after a crime talk about the Frankston serial killer and said that his wife felt guilty because she sometimes gave one of the victims, Natalie, a lift home from school. But on the day Natalie was murdered, the wife got caught up. And if only that hadn't have happened, Natalie might not have died. 
As the man spoke, I had a profound realisation that his wife probably felt more guilt than the actual killer. Over many years, I've found that hindsight brings guilt to the ones who aren't guilty. The reality, of course, is that chance can't stop a murder. Only the murderer can. For people not native to Melbourne, the Royal Melbourne Show is held for a couple of weeks every September out at the Flemington Racecourse. It started out as an agricultural show, but it's morphed into more of a kaleidoscope of fairy floss and food halls, rides and show bags and signs with inappropriately placed apostrophes. Its agricultural roots are still obvious in the huge halls full of prized cows, sheep, dogs and chickens. Hundreds of thousands of people visit over the fortnight it's on. The lead-up to the show was also the last time Beth's friend Wendy Orchard saw her. She was driving along McPhee's Road, where they both lived, on the way to the Royal Melbourne showgrounds. When she saw Beth approaching, they both slowed, stopped and rolled down their windows for a chat. I'm always struck by these everyday moments shared with friends that would be lost in time otherwise. But because it turned out to be the last time she spoke with Beth, Wendy will never forget those couple of minutes. I last saw her about a week before she died. We just had passed each other on the road. I was busy. I was taking a team of dairy goats up to Melbourne show and we passed each other on the road and we just sort of stopped and I said, well, you know, I'm, go- I'm due to go. And she said, oh, I'll come up and see you when, uh, when you're, while you're there. So uh, sort of a semi-arranged when she would be coming, but not really, but sort of semi-arranged it when she would be coming up because mum and, mum and dad were still in queue at that point in time. So, um, and the year before, she and her dad came in and saw me and so they were going to do the same again this year. Beth's last day was described to us and faithfully documented many years ago secondhand through Beth's friend Denise. Her friend Marie had told her about the last day, but she chose not to talk to us. Denise was happy to share what she knew. Beth was still feeling the effects of the flu and was on leave from both the Penguin Parade and the Cameron Farm. The day before, on Sunday the 21st of September, at 10.30 in the morning, she'd seen Dr Paul Flood, who'd prescribed her some antibiotics. On Monday, Beth rang Marie and arranged to go round to her house. The two women went for a wander up to the local newsagent. They loved buying magazines and entering competitions. While they sat in Marie's house filling out entry forms, Beth spoke about her relationship with Fergus. She said that she was tired of the way their affair was going and that she saw little future in the way it had developed during the past year or so. Fergus echoes this in his statement to the police. He had seen Beth the night before, on the Sunday, and this is how he described his visit. These are Fergus's words, but not Fergus's voice. On Sunday evening, I left the Penguin Parade at about 10 minutes to 8 after work and got to Beth's place at about 8pm. Beth wasn't working at the Penguin Parade this night and wasn't to work for a fortnight and she wasn't to work on my farm as she was taking leave from both jobs. When I got there, Beth was despondent as she had been having trouble with her sinus infection and Dr Paul Flood had put her on antibiotics. 
She said also that she couldn't see any change in our relationship. By this she meant between Vivian and myself, and I assured her that it was. I told Beth that Vivian and I had discussed the question of separating, but I was hung up on the question of timing. I left at about 9pm and promised to return between 7am and 7.30am the following morning. I arrived home a little bit after 9pm, which Vivian had always assumed was the normal finishing time for the penguins. I was met by a barrage of telephone calls, which is normal, but on this night they continued until 12.30am, and because of early morning phone calls, I didn't get back to Beth until about 8.30am. It's unclear from his statement if Fergus returned to Beth's the following morning, Monday the 22nd of September, or whether he telephoned her. Beth was still very despondent, but she was most anxious that I ring her at lunchtime and was a lot more cheerful and was keen for me to see her after the Penguins on Monday night, which I did. In light of Fergus's statement, it's not surprising that Beth told Marie that she planned to give Fergus an ultimatum over dinner that night. She was going to tell him to resolve his marital situation one way or another. Beth saw no future in their relationship continuing the way things were. She'd been so upset after Vivian caught them hugging in the shearing shed. Beth wasn't the type to intentionally break up a marriage. She had been deeply in love with Fergus and had always believed that the Cameron marriage was effectively over before her affair with Fergus had begun. It was a difficult time for her. In secret relationships, it's easy to give false hope and tell a girlfriend, my wife doesn't understand me, or that the marriage is over in all but name. It's easy to see why someone would do that. They can have their cake and eat it too. Sex and adoration on one side, family intact and at home on the other. This story has played out millions of times world over. A much younger woman believing the marriage is over and the wife the last to know. The sad thing about this is that despite what he might have been telling Beth to give her hope for a future, Vivian herself had her own hopes for her marriage. She was attending marriage counselling alone. She had lost weight. She was trying to make herself more attractive for her husband and refused to believe that her efforts were in vain. Now, the Royal Melbourne show falls in the school holidays. But back in 1986, the show day Thursday was a public holiday. Because Phillip Island had lots of farming families who would be participating in the show, many took their holidays on a less crowded day. On Monday the 22nd of September, a busload of locals took off for the show. As Isabel Adicote, Vivian's coordinator colleague at the community house, drove past on a bus to the show on Monday the 22nd of September, she saw Vivian at work. It was the Monday that was actually the holiday in the town for the show. And I was going on the bus to the show with my husband into Melbourne that left at 12.30 on the Monday lunchtime. And we drove past the community house and uh, I just glanced across and Vivian was sitting there looking out the window because the table was in front of the window and we used to sit and look out at the window, out at the street. 
which was rather nice, actually. And I just remarked to my husband, oh, Vivian's working. I I must try and ring her and uh, change my days because I had something that was going on that I had to change my day. So I never thought anything more about that. Sue Chadwick remembers seeing Vivian later on the Monday afternoon. She remembers her talking about taking her two boys on a trip to Melbourne. It's not clear if Vivian meant she was taking them to visit the Royal Melbourne show just for the day or if she intended staying longer. We know that earlier she had asked her brother Keith if she could come and stay with him and he had put her off until the end of the week. If Sue's memory is correct, perhaps Vivian organised to stay with someone else or perhaps it was just a day visit she planned. I was with her on the Monday of the event and that was later in the day before she was going home. She was just quite happily in the office looking forward to the day after when she was taking the boys to Melbourne and talking about that and being glad to get off the island for a while and just be with the boys herself. As everyone slowly takes their position for the night of Monday the 22nd of September 1986, it's important to understand that in the aftermath, Beth Barnard and Vivian Cameron won't be able to add their side of the story. The police can only speak to those who are left behind and they, like us, were left to piece together the events. Let us begin our account of that fateful night with Beth Barnard's next-door neighbour, Diane. There were only seven houses in all of McPhee's Road and traffic was rare. Cars that didn't belong to residents were usually noticed. Diane was standing on her front porch and saw the lights of a car approaching. When it slowed, she thought it was going to turn into her driveway, but instead it turned into Beth's. Diane watched with casual interest because the car idled in the driveway with its lights on for a couple of minutes. She could see the headlights through a row of tall trees which lined the side of Beth's driveway nearest her house. Diane thought it was strange. Because she was due to go out in half an hour, she looked at the time. It was 7.50pm. Then we moved to Fergus's sister, Marnie Cairns. She wanted to talk to Fergus on the night of Monday, the 22nd of September. She rang the Cameron home just after 8pm. Vivian answered and told her Fergus was still at work and that she might be able to catch him at the Penguin Parade. When Marnie rang the Penguin Parade and was told that Fergus had already left, she waited a while, the drive home wouldn't take more than around 10 minutes, and then made her way a couple of hundred metres down the road to Fergus and Vivian's. She got there around 8.30pm. But Fergus wasn't on his way home. He was heading to Beth's house. He had no idea that his lie had been caught out by his wife and his sister. As the two women sat at his house waiting for him, he drove to his girlfriend's. When Fergus later described the visit, he doesn't mention any ultimatum on Beth's part. After I finished work at the Penguins at about 8pm or shortly afterwards, I went to Beth's place in my 1978 Holden sedan. I drove up the driveway with my headlights on and parked in the backyard on an angle between a big gum tree off to one side in the yard and where Beth parks her car in a garage immediately behind her house. 
Beth came to the back door to meet me, and to my knowledge, this security-type door had not always been locked, and on a number of occasions, I told her to be more security-conscious and to keep the door locked. I went in, and we sat down, in the beanbag, in front of the heater, in the lounge room, and talked about a lot of things. We were both more optimistic than we had been for a while about Vivian and myself separating. There was no reason, but we were just both optimistic. I left Beth's place at about five minutes past nine that night, and we did not make love at all, but we did kiss and cuddle and exchange affectionate words, and I departed. Before I left Beth's that night, she said that she might go back to Melbourne that night and stay with her parents for a week at least, if not that night, the following morning. I thought she would stay overnight and go the following morning as I told her I would come around then and we never missed a chance to see each other. I said that we didn't make love that night, which is true, but we did the previous evening being Sunday when I visited her. This took place in her bed, in her bedroom, which is at the rear of the house. When I left Beth on Monday evening, she was wearing a woolen jumper, but I don't remember the colour and shirt, bra, and light blue tracksuit trousers. She used to wear a light blue nightshirt to bed, to the best of my knowledge. On her right wrist, she was wearing a silver band bracelet and chain bracelet, which was a gift from me. When I left Beth on the Monday night, this was the last time I saw her alive. When I left, she walked with me to the car and kissed me goodbye, so I am unable to say if she locked the door or not, but I think she would have. I drove out the driveway, turned left into McPhee's Road, and drove home. I've always wondered if Beth's farm dog might have tried to protect her during the attack. I asked the police at the time whether they saw a dog when they went to the crime scene, and none of them could remember. In the crime scene photos, there are two bowls on the floor in the kitchen, ice cream containers. One has water in it and the other has dog food. It's suggested to me that there was a dog and it was an indoor dog. Wendy Orchard solved the mystery. As far as I can remember, Minty was either in pup or just had puppies because I got one of them after she died. I would imagine Minty would have been inside with her. So would the dog have been able to come to Beth's aid during the attack? No, Minty was the softie. I doubt very much whether Minty would have made any noise. Even if she'd been there, it was possible to shut her in another room or let her out the door as they went in or any of that, anything like that could have happened. Back at the Cameron farmhouse, as Vivian sipped on a glass of wine at the kitchen table, One can only imagine the conversation. Fergus's sister Marnie arriving because Fergus left work at 8pm, the clock ticking away the minutes that both women knew he wasn't on his way home. Perhaps both suspecting where he was. So it can't have been comfortable when Fergus arrived home after 9pm. Here's how he described it. Marnie looked very agitated and Vivian was visibly trembling. And as I walked in, the phone rang. I could see that Vivian was drinking a glass of wine. 
and Marnie might have been as well, but I can't remember. When the phone rang, Fergus took the call, leaving his wife and his sister in the kitchen. Marnie described the scene. She said, It was at this time that Vivian said, Stay and have a glass of wine, because Fergus would be some time. I stayed and I had a glass of wine, and Vivian continued to drink the one she had. I didn't see her fill it up again. When Fergus finished his phone call around 9.45pm, Marnie spoke to him for a couple of minutes, then made the short journey home. The only account we have of what happened in the next 10 minutes is from Fergus Cameron. After Marnie left, I shut the back door and walked back into the dining room, picked up my glass of wine and Vivian followed me in. She pulled the plug out of the phone and screamed. Where have you been? I just said, I've been talking to Beth. She then raced at me with a glass of wine and screamed. I knew you were with that little bitch. I think she hit me with the wine glass, which broke on the left side of my head and cut my left ear. I turned my back away from her and she hit me two or three times with a broken glass. At this stage, I was standing between the dining room and a hallway in the doorway itself. I turned and walked to the bedroom at the top of the house and sat on the bed. Vivian was still following me and in the bedroom was pushing me. She was screaming out things including, I knew what was going on. I've been watching the number of hours you've been working. I suppose everyone out there knew what was going on. She said a lot of other things, but I can't remember what they were. Her rage would have lasted no longer than a minute and a half and quickly changed to concern as there was blood everywhere and she wanted to take me to the hospital immediately. I refused and she shouted that she was going to start making some decisions around here. At that point, I went and poured myself a whiskey and Vivian kept insisting that I had to go to the hospital. These comments were interspersed with that she knew all along what was going on between Beth and myself. Her only concern at this point was to get me to hospital, as I was making some attempt to staunch the flow of blood from my ear. I also knew that my back was bleeding fairly badly. Vivian was not injured at all, and at no time was she struck. She was saying repeatedly, why couldn't you talk to me? And I was in tears saying, I don't know. I don't know. At this point, I was holding her and she was holding me. I agreed to go to hospital and we agreed that we must ring Marnie to come and look after the children. To the best of my knowledge, this would have been around 10.15pm. We did not wait for Marnie to arrive, but I changed my shirt and jumper and went into hospital with Vivian driving and me in the front passenger seat. We went in my Holden sedan. It's interesting to note that Fergus describes Vivian as acting like she just had her suspicions confirmed. It doesn't sound at all like he and Vivian had been talking about the timing of their divorce, which is what he said he told Beth. Marnie hadn't even time to remove her jacket before getting a phone call from Vivian. Here are Marnie's words. She asked if I could go back and look after the children as Fergus required a couple of stitches. I could tell by the tone of her voice that there must have been some form of altercation which was probably due to his late arrival home from the Penguin Parade or even the lengthy phone call. I didn't actually ask her what had happened. 
but I said I would look after the children. I then went straight back and Ian said he would follow me. When I arrived, I checked the two boys, who appeared to be asleep, and noticed that a small fan heater had been tipped over. Marnie described finding the broken glass. We then discovered broken glass on the floor in the dining room and we cleaned that up so the children would not see it. Marnie, together with her husband Ian Cairns, checked the rest of the house and this is what Marnie noticed. I went into the toilet and noticed a pile of blood-soaked clothing consisting of a singlet, T-shirt, a pale blue shirt from the Penguin Parade, a face washer and a towel. There were also some tissues in the basin which had blood on them. Ian arrived shortly after and I showed him the clothing. He suggested that we leave it where it was and not touch it. I had a look around the house and saw blood on the bed in the spare room and also on the bench in the kitchen. Ian said, There are a number of signs of struggle which included the heater in the family room being tipped up, drops of blood on the kitchen bench, broken glass near the auto tray in the dining room, papers in the study in disarray and further evidence of blood. I also noticed that there was a singlet and shirt covered in blood in a corner of the bathroom. The two children were asleep in their bedroom. Lisa Price is a registered nurse and in September 1986, she worked at the Worley Hospital in Cowes, the same hospital that Marnie Cairns worked at. It was a 15-bed hospital with a small casualty department. Only two nurses worked each shift and Lisa was working the night shift on Monday the 22nd of September. If people arrive at the casualty section after hours, they had to ring a bell and the nurse could see who they were before unlocking the glass sliding door. When the doorbell went around 10.15pm, Lisa Price saw Vivian and Fergus Cameron standing there. He was holding a cloth to the side of his head and it was obvious to her that Fergus was bleeding. She let them in and led them down to the casualty department. Things turned odd when she sat them down and asked what had happened. It was a very awkward situation because neither Vivian or Fergus would verbalise anything to me. I was asking questions about, well, you know, what's actually happened here? And they would look at one another. There was very long, intense looks between the two of them, but they never said anything. So I kept uh, questioning, you know, saying, look, I need to know what's, um, what's happened so that I can assess the injuries and then decide, you know, whether we need to call the doctor. But I certainly didn't feel there'd been an argument between Fergus and Vivian because they looked very close during this time and she looked quite concerned about him and he looked concerned about her and it just never occurred to me that I never thought that that would have been an issue between the two of them and so they obviously weren't wanting to elaborate on that any further so I thought it was probably best to go down to the kitchen and make them a cup of tea and then bring that back and sort of sit and chat to them a little bit further, which then allowed me to sort of decide whether it required me calling a doctor or not. So I said I would go and make them a cup of tea and then as I got up and I walked behind, I just happened to walk behind Fergus and I must have glanced back and I could see blood coming through his shirt. And so I pulled up his shirt and could see puncture marks on his back what appeared to be puncture marks of some description and 
And then I got a little bit annoyed and said, look, you know, guys, I, I, you've got to tell me what's going on because I can't, I can't assess um, the injuries. I don't know how serious the injuries are if you don't tell me what's actually happened. They said he'd fallen through a plate glass window. So up until then, they said nothing. So holding the ear, the ear was bleeding, never said anything about what had happened. And then when I walked behind him, I saw the blood on the shirt, lifted his shirt, got annoyed, said, you've got to tell me what's going on. And then Vivian said he fell through a plate glass window or a plate glass door, I think she said. And that's when I thought there must have been an altercation in the family between brothers for some reason. And I thought that's why they didn't want to say anything because they were a very private family and it just seemed to fit that perhaps that that's what it was and they were embarrassed about the vacation and they didn't want to say. Not getting anywhere with Vivian and Fergus, Lisa phoned the on-call physician, Dr Alan Powles. She explained how Vivian and Fergus Cameron refused to elaborate on what caused the injuries. Maybe the doctor would have a better chance of getting to the truth. I've always wondered why, if it was so obviously embarrassing for Vivian and Fergus to go to the hospital, why they didn't ask Marnie to help Fergus. Marnie worked at the hospital too. Lisa explained that she remembered Marnie as being a state-enrolled nurse rather than the more qualified registered nurse. She felt that if the injury needed stitches, it might have been beyond Marnie's experience. Marnie might also not have had the supplies at home to clean and dress the wounds. So given that Fergus and Vivian were at the hospital, how did they seem to Lisa Price? Their bond looked very, to me, it looked very close. It looked like there was a level of understanding. They were both clearly aware of what had happened. And it was like a a pact. They were together on what had happened, but they weren't wanting to tell anybody else. They came across as a unit. They, They really did look like they were together on the situation. From Lisa Price's point of view, the Camerons looked united and connected. Here's what it looked like to Fergus when he gave his statement to the police two days later. Vivian talked about it all the way in and said that she knew what had been going on between Beth and me and the conversation was fairly calm until we got to the hospital. When we arrived to the hospital, Vivian parked outside and she was turning off the ignition. She turned to me and said, I'm just going to get the little bitch. I didn't take this threat seriously as these threats are often made by persons in anger and I thought that her physical anger had been vented on me, and the subsequent concern would stop her doing any more acts of violence. At the hospital, I was treated by Dr Powles, and Vivian was helping where possible, and her concern was very evident. While we were waiting for the doctor, Vivian said to me, Beth is obviously very special to you, Fergus, and I replied, yes, she is. She then said something similar to, I didn't mean what I said before. I took this to mean she didn't have any intention of doing any harm to Beth. Could Lisa Price have mistaken a calm Vivian for someone who was inwardly murderous? Well, she was very quiet, whether it was a seething anger and I misread it. Um, But no, I I didn't. That wasn't my perception at all. It was a, uh, she looked concerned They looked very deep in thought. I think Fergus was crying. 
he was certainly the more emotional of the two. And she was, she was certainly, you know, playing like a caring type role towards him. That's why it never occurred to me that, that she would be responsible for those injuries because it just didn't read that way. The shifts at the Worley Hospital overlapped so that nurses finishing their shifts had plenty of time to hand over to the nurses replacing them. Toward the end of Lisa Price's shift, her replacement, Susan Bishop, came on duty. Later in her police statement, Susan Bishop described the night. When I arrived at work on that night, I noticed a Holden sedan, khaki green colour, parked out the front on a funny angle to the curb. I then went inside and met Lisa Price and started handover from her. She advised that Fergus and Vivian Cameron were at the hospital and that Fergus was badly cut and they would not say how it had happened. Then we discussed their reasons for confidentiality and didn't take the matter any further at this stage. After Lisa Price began finishing up at the end of her shift, Susan Bishop went into the treatment room. Here's what she later told police. Fergus was lying on the table being attended to by Dr. Powell's and Vivian was standing next to the table. I know Fergus and Vivian and they were obviously embarrassed. I acknowledged their presence and then assisted Dr. Powell's with some sterile equipment. At some time, Vivian asked to use the telephone and Lisa took her away to use it. And then Lisa then left the hospital and went home and I checked on the other patients. I then remained in the office until Dr. Powell's came out and asked if there was a male bed available. I informed him that there was, and he then went back into Vivian and Fergus. There was some discussion about whether Fergus should stay in the hospital or go home. Vivian wanted him to stay in the hospital, but the doctor didn't think it was necessary. It was then decided that Fergus would go home, and I assisted Dr. Powell's with bandaging Fergus and dressing the wounds. Dr. Powell's then left, and I completed the task. Fergus then got dressed with Vivian's assistance and they left the hospital. I saw them to the door and then locked the door after them. This would have been around 12 or 12.30am, but no later. I didn't see Vivian or Fergus again that night. Dr Alan Powells would later give his account of the night. He had arrived at the hospital around 10.30pm to treat Fergus Cameron. Fergus told him that there had been an accident with some glass. The doctor noted the laceration to his left ear and three cuts to the back. While he cleaned and sutured the injuries, Vivian stayed in the room. The only time she left was to make the phone call to Marnie Cairns. While the doctor was stitching Fergus's injuries, he asked him if it hurt. Fergus said no and Vivian said, well, you're luckier than I am. Powell's remembered Vivian also saying something like, I'm better inside, but no good with this shit. If the doctor knew what she was talking about, he didn't elaborate in his statement. Even though Lisa Price had regarded Vivian as calm, the doctor felt that she seemed tense and upset. Powell's had left the hospital around 11.45, leaving Susan Bishop to finish cleaning Fergus Cameron's ear. When Fergus and Vivian arrived home from the hospital, Marnie explained what happened next. 
Vivian said that although Fergus had not stayed in the hospital, she felt that he needed a rest away from the phone and that he would not be able to work for a while. I then suggested that Fergus stay with us overnight as he had to see the doctor again in the morning. We then talked for a while and they agreed to resolve something about their future and they told me not to worry, that they were okay. I went home and Vivian said she would drop Fergus over after they had spoken. Fergus would later tell police what he and Vivian discussed in the time after Marnie left. Vivian and I joked about the fact the hospital appeared to have no concern about my safety and Marnie left and Vivian and I discussed our marriage for an hour and a half and the following suggestions all came from Vivian. That we separate immediately. That she resign from her job and move to Melbourne. That I have the custody of our children. I agreed to this and she said that I was an excellent father. She wasn't a very good mother and I disagreed and she gave me two warnings. One was not to be too stern with the children and not to take it for granted that Beth was going to make an excellent mother. She helped me pack a bag and talked about what I would need the next couple of days and I said I would give her a ring in the morning and see how she was getting on and she drove down to Marnie's. At Marnie's place, we sat in our car which was the Holden Sedan 1978 model, and held each other. And I said to Vivian, who was driving, I wish we had done it differently. She said, I'll give it a good bash, but I don't think I'll make a very good divorcee. I then said goodbye to Vivian, and Marnie kissed her goodnight. And Vivian left in a Holden Sedan, and I haven't seen her since. To the best of my recollection, she left about 1am on the Tuesday morning. Even though she had to work at 8am the next morning at the Worley Hospital, Marnie waited up until Fergus and Vivian arrived at 2am. Vivian didn't come inside the house. She spoke to Marnie at the back door. Marnie said that she had given Vivian two Mogadon tablets in an envelope and told her to take one. Mogadon is a benzodiazepine drug prescribed to treat insomnia. She said that Vivian and Fergus had told her that Vivian had decided to go to Melbourne the following day and to leave the boys with Fergus. After Vivian had left, Marnie and Fergus talked till the small hours of the morning. Here's how Marnie later described it. He said, Well, it's all over, Marnie, and was very upset. He told me that they had had a long, rational talk and that Viv seemed determined that that was the only solution. We spoke very broadly and went to bed at about 3am. So at 2am, according to Marnie, we have Vivian dropping Fergus off and heading for home. An hour later at 3am, the phone rang at John and Robin Dixon's house. John and Robin were friends of the Camerons. John answered. It was Vivian calling. She said she was ringing from the hospital where she and Fergus were and that the children were home. Of course, Vivian wasn't at the hospital with Fergus. That visit was hours earlier. On the phone, Vivian asked if Robin and John could collect the children and take them back to their house for the night. They agreed and arrived 10 minutes later, woke the children and took them home. Robin Dixon noticed the Cameron's Holden Kingswood sedan was in the garage. She concluded that Vivian and Fergus 
must have been picked up by a relative or maybe in an ambulance. Of course, Robin and John Dixon weren't to know that Vivian and Fergus had actually driven the Holden to the hospital earlier. They also had no idea that this was the same car Vivian had used an hour earlier to drop Fergus at his sister Marnie's house. The back porch light, the bathroom light and a little room light were on in the house and everything appeared normal. Robin Dixon saw a black suede handbag was on the table inside the back door, which she assumed belonged to Vivian. This made her think she left in a hurry. The Dixons didn't notice any of the blood that was later found in the hallway, bedroom and bathroom of the Cameron house. Beth's elderly neighbour, Margaret McPhee, lived up the road from Beth. McPhee's road had been named after her husband's family. She woke up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet at 3.20am and she heard a car drive past. It was loud and the light shone right into her bedroom window. It sounded a bit like her son's Toyota tray truck. Mrs McPhee was a bit worried because her sister-in-law Cherry lived at the end of the road by herself and she was very conscious of vehicles going up to the end of the road. She waited for it to come back and within minutes it did, so she didn't think any more about it and went back to sleep. From here, we need to fast forward two hours. Two men up and about in the early hours of Tuesday, the 23rd of September, both saw vehicles where they wouldn't normally be. Wayne Hunt was a delivery driver for Home Pride Bread doing his early morning run. Around 5am, he noticed a vehicle parked near the Phillip Island Bridge. He gave it little more than a glance. It was strange for a vehicle to be parked there. He thought perhaps someone had pulled over to use the public toilets. The moment was fleeting and then he didn't think anything more about it. Local mechanic and handyman Maury Duffy worked early mornings for a local racehorse trainer. Around 5.30am, he hit the intersection of the Phillip Island Road and the real Newhaven Road. He heard a two-stroke motorbike coming from the direction of the Phillip Island Bridge. He stopped his car at the intersection and let the bike go past. It was a two-wheeled ag bike with no head or tail lights on. It was pitch black and all Murray could see was a rider wearing an oilskin-type coat. The ag bike was heading west. A little way further up the road, it could either turn right and head toward Cowes or go left and head towards Ventnor, where the Camerons lived. The rider would never be known. Hours later, the body of Beth Barnard would be discovered. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron. He then called out, anyone there or something like that? And getting no response, he took a couple of paces inside. I then heard him say something like, oh God, the worst has happened. You'd better look. Uh, after a few minutes, Marnie came out and said, um, there's, there's been a, I think she said there's been a family emergency or there's a situation I have to go and I have to go immediately and she left. Ash told us that in the end, he cut Donald Cameron short, saying, Donald, exactly what are you trying to tell me? According to Ash, 
Donald Cameron replied, Um, it's Beth. I think she's not well. 